0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was Mr. Ringo Starr on the drums. That is the tree from which barefaced Colin fell. That's Mr. Bobby Dollar. Thank you, Mr. Bobby. We appreciate that so much. Yes, sir. Well, find your place with me in Mark's Gospel, chapter number nine. We have been preaching through Mark's gospel since a long time ago. Not that long. I guess we started around February or so, but nonetheless, here we go. Yeah, that's not that long. Everything's relative, isn't it? Yeah. So we find ourselves today in Mark chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 14, and we'll read down through verse number 29. So here we go. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, God's Word says, beginning there, When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, that is Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and here it is. Here's the phrase that controls this entire story. And they could not. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he, that is Jesus, asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit." I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. When he came Into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. We have probably all heard the story of the little engine who can. Well, this is the story of the little church that could not. And I don't know if there is a more apt description for the modern U.S. church than that. The little church who cannot, or the little church that could not. Seems that one of the things that's missing today in all of our religious activity is the power of God. You remember that commercial that promoted Wendy's hamburgers years ago where the little old lady said, where's the beef? And it seems that we can ask that question today about so much of our spirituality and a whole lot of what goes on under the auspices and under the umbrella of the church. Where is the power? I mean, we have tried to substitute entertainment, uh, we have tried to substitute pop psychology. Uh, We have tried to make positive thinking. We have tried to make everything be a substitute for the power of God. And because of that, we have become the little church that cannot. That cannot what? Well, that basically can't do anything that's outside the reach of our own human power. And can I say to you that the world is not looking to see what we can do. If we want to impress the world, then they've got to see more than what we can claim in our own, the power of our own resources and ingenuity, but where we sit around and say, there's no way on planet Earth that could have happened unless God did it. Where is the power of God? Well, I think, This passage, again, aptly describes spirituality today in the United States of America. Where is the power? So let's look at this passage of Scripture today and see what we can deduce and how it is that we can maybe rectify and try to cure this problem of spiritual anemia that grips so many of us and plagues so many churches. I think the Bible says in these verses, basically three three things about this subject, and let's look at all three of them in order very quickly. I think the first thing that this passage of Scripture will affirm is this. When the church can't, serious problems arise. Hey, if we can't as a local church, then something else will. You know what I'm saying? And we're talking about in the realm of spirituality. If the church does not possess the place of prominence in spirituality, I promise you there is another pseudo-spirituality that will fill the void and fill the vacuum. So notice what takes place in this passage of Scripture. Notice, here were these disciples, and remember... What controls this entire narrative is that saying, Lord, I brought my son to you and asked the disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They could not. So what happens when the church can't? Well, when the church can't, serious problems arise. Now, notice the first problem that arises when the church can't. Number one, enemies are emboldened. They are emboldened. Now what does the word emboldened mean? It just means that they are given courage to do things that they normally would not do. You know anybody like that? That they feed off of other people's weaknesses? They feed off of failure? And when they see failure, it's (laughs) kind of like the buzzards in Brazil. They're called in Portuguese Arubu. And they're not just buzzards that sit around and wait for something to die. They're aggressive. They're so aggressive until we were walking one day. We had about 10 kilometers to walk to get to an unreached village. And one of the Brazilians that was with us says, Pastor Richie, if you get a blister on your foot, don't limp. I said, what do you mean? He said, these buzzards can smell weakness. He said, if you start limping, the buzzards going to come and they're liable to finish you off before we can get them off of you. That's the way it is when the church is weak. When the church shows anemia and failure and when the church cannot hear me, the enemies of the gospel will be emboldened and they'll rise up. Hey, how many people do you know that say that they're not in church today because of some failure on the church's part maybe years ago. Now look, I'm not justifying that excuse at all, but I'm just telling you that it is a reality. Folk will take every weakness and it will cause them to be emboldened because if the church has no more power than that, then what will cause me to keep my mouth shut and regard it as sacred? So when the church cannot... Enemies are emboldened. Look how the enemies came out here. When they came back, to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And look at this. Some of the scribes, get this, arguing with who? With the disciples. Now, why were they all of a sudden taking opportunity to argue? Because I promise you, those scribes were there, and they saw those disciples fail. I mean, can you imagine what happened? The the father brings this boy to him, and Matthew says, No problem, I can take care of that. In the name of Jesus, you deaf-mute spirit, I command you to leave. And and he didn't. Matthew sits down and says, I don't know what's going on. I I did it just like the master has taught us. Uh, Why why is it not working? And Matthew sits down, and maybe another one stands up. Maybe Bartholomew stands up and says, It's got to be you. Let me try it. So he stands up and tries it probably goes through all nine of them because three of them, remember, were with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were coming back with Jesus. And after all nine of them failed, guess what? The scribes become emboldened. And they stand up and they begin to jeer and they begin to snide because as it is with the disciple, that's a reflection on the Master. So if the disciples are powerless, it must mean that Jesus Christ himself is powerless if they stand up And they are emboldened now in a power vacuum because the church cannot. And they begin to persecute and they begin to argue and chide and criticize and belittle the disciples. See, that's what happens when the church cannot. We are all made a laughing stock and enemies take courage and pleasure and shooting at us in every opportunity that that they find. So when the church cannot, just mark it down. Enemies are emboldened. Now, notice what else takes place here. Not only when the church cannot, serious problems arise, the enemies are emboldened, but also innocent suffer. Innocent who? Well, you understand in in the strictest term of the word, nobody's innocent. So I, I like to refer to this as collateral damage. There's collateral damage that takes place. There are people who are not involved, so to speak, in the fight that get injured. It's kind of like when the military makes a strike and there are civilian casualties. Where here, there's collateral damage. Notice who the innocent are that suffer. In this case, it was this little boy. It was this child. Now, stop and think about it. He didn't have anything, he didn't have a dog in the fight here. But nonetheless, he was a victim of demonic possession and the church could do nothing about it. Now, do I need to convince you today of the same tactic that the devil is using and the reason our land is being ravaged and many of us today can get on the stomp very easily about the direction of our country But can I remind you that if our country is headed to the toilet, do you know who sent it there? Listen, it's not legislators, it's not elected officials. Think about it. If this nation was once founded upon the principles established in God's Word and was once governed by godly men and women, then who lost it? It's the church. Society is nothing more than a reflection of the church. And I've got a lot of friends who stand in pulpit and they want to point a finger at what's going wrong with our country, but I'm telling you, the reason our country's headed that way is because there's an anemic church that can do nothing about it. So innocent people suffer. Innocent people suffer. The tactic of the devil has changed. Friends, over the past 40 years, I mean, we used to see things that were atrocious taking place in the adult population. About the 1970s, it switched to university campuses where college kids were, were doing all sorts of demonic things. Then it went from there to high school campuses in the 80s and 90s. And today, you find it in preschool. All you got to do is watch your news report. I mean, I watched a, a, a news report this week that talked about how much mind-altering psychotic medication is being prescribed to children under the age of 10. Now, whether it's demonic or not, I'll tell you what it is. It's, it's symptomatic of the, uh, 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 of, of the absence of godliness. And when there's a spiritual vacuum, something else, some other spiritual power is going to fill that vacuum. And it's not the responsibility of Congress, our legislators, or political leaders. They cannot do anything about it. The only ones who can are the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. And here we are, impotent, can't do anything about it. Reminds me of one of the greatest theologians that ever lived in the 13th century was walking through one of the, uh, one of the uh, cathedrals uh, uh, in the Vatican in Rome. And he was walking through it with the Pope, and this thing is ornate, has gold all over the ceilings and, and ivory. And the Pope said to Thomas, he said, Thomas, no longer can the church say, Silver and gold have I none, as Peter did in Acts chapter 3 when he said to the lame man, Silver and gold have I none but such as I have in the name of Jesus, I give you. The Pope says, Thomas, we can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas said, sir, you're right, but neither can we say in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. We have lost our power. We've lost our voice of influence. We've lost the ability to protect. We've lost the ability to be the controlling spiritual entity in our nation. Why is that? Well, I think this passage of Scripture walks us through the process and tells us why it is. Number one, this passage tells us that when the church cannot, serious problems arise. Hey, we will never know the danger of being involved in an impotent church. If we can't, protect ourselves by the power of god not the power of the sword then friends we are sitting ducks and satan can have his way with us and by the way all the liberals say well just read the description this wasn't demonic it was epilepsy if it's epilepsy then jesus is, a, is crazy because he didn't call it epilepsy he spoke personally to a demon spirit that was wanting to destroy that child. And I'm telling you, there's nothing sacred to, to, to Satan. He'd just as soon destroy your three-year-old as he had you. He'll do anything. He's just that way. Now notice what takes place. Serious problems arise. But when the church cannot, it's because a subtle process occurred. I mean, it's so subtle. Watch me. You may not even know it. It's kind of like the frog in the kettle syndrome. It just creeps in so easy until you don't even know it. And one day you wake up and you're way miles away from where you were supposed to be. Notice this subtle process that takes place uh, and ultimately calls these disciples to be the little church that could not. What was the process? Well, first I want you to see this. The first stage of this process is. They had a previous degree of success. Now, I want you to see this. I put this scripture in here, and I'm just going to fly past it, but I, we probably need to see it. Notice what happened in, in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus commissioned these guys, sent them out, and gave them authority to go out and preach the gospel and to cast out demons. Do you remember that? Now, look with me in, in verse number 13. Here's the end of the story. And they were casting out, look what the scripture says, many demons. So this confrontation with this demon-possessed boy, it wasn't something that they were not familiar with. They'd seen this. As a matter of fact, they had done it before and they had done it quite successfully. Can I say to you the first step in being lulled to sleep spiritually is to have a a little bit of success up front. Now watch me, Grace. Something's been bothering me for a long time. Long is relative. I don't know. Six, eight months. This has been gnawing at me. Because here's the deal with Grace Church. Grace Church came out of the shoots pretty quickly. Boom. We popped up pretty quickly. I mean, we were having folks come to faith. We were having folks come back to a a vital relationship with Christ we're sending people and we're sending resources all around the world I mean we had a certain degree of success we got up to 100, 120 just like that but what happened and I've heard this dialogue even in our midst And can I I say to you Grace Church I'm an old man now you see this I've got no hair to prove it i've been doing ministry for a long time and hear me i have never been in a local church scenario in the united states of america that had all of the critical components for church growth in one place like grace church bonifay does we've got all the ingredients we've got all the elements and just last week I walked up somebody that was talking about that here in church saying, I don't understand why we're not growing. And could it be because of the same process that caused these disciples to be the little church that couldn't? See, they had a degree of success. They'd done it before. What happens when you have a degree of success? Well, after there's a degree of success, it's very easy, easy to make a dangerous assumption. And that's what they did. They had a degree of success. And then on the heels of that, they made a dangerous assumption. You know what their dangerous assumption was? You see, Jesus sent them out in Mark chapter 6, gave them authority. And now they were casting out demons. They were causing sick people to get well. I can tell you what probably happened. They put their thumbs under their lapels and said, look at us we're going to win the associational award this year for most demons cast out in a single month (laughs) they're going to give us a plaque (laughs) they're going to give us all this stuff because look at us we're doing it daddy we're doing it and you know what happens once you've had a degree of success you make a dangerous assumption that you're always going to be fruitful and that it's always gonna be like this. This is easy-peasy. There's nothing to it. It's a piece of cake and when you make that dangerous assumption, when you take for granted that it's always gonna be good like this, then I promise you something else takes place in this process right on the heels of that. Here's what takes place. Once you make that dangerous assumption, the next thing is that discipline begins to slip. Discipline will begin to slip. You see, here's the deal. When Grace Church first started out, man, when, 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 when it was only 12, and it was only 20, and when it was only 40, when we were struggling, when Dean and Sarah asked, was there any way we could chip in $3,500 a month to pay a pastor, John Wilson said, not even close. <laughs> Not even close. You see, what what does hard times cause you to do? Just this week I had a guy come to my house to fix something, and we got to talking about spiritual things, and this is what he said. He said, old timers around here used to say that good times. Easy times produce weak men. But hard times produce strong men. And I've been thinking about that. He's right. Hey, so here's the thing. When the going gets tough, then we start picking back up on discipline. Then we start taking care. Then we start praying like we ought to and wasn't that the problem this is what jesus said here's what happened what had taken place well discipline had slipped and you know what the major discipline that slipped in their life was brother cliff jesus said in verse number 29 this time kind comes out by nothing except prayer now this is what jesus meant he didn't mean this he didn't mean there's a demon boy comes up to you and how are you gonna cast him out well right here in this prayer, you're gonna pray Dear God, I beseech you on behalf of this child to cast this demon. He's not talking about that. What he's talking about is that you will not have the ability to do that type of thing because that grows out of a vital and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ that expresses itself in a deep, intimate prayer life. And if discipline slips, and we're not praying, then we end up in the same position that these disciples. Guess what Jesus called them? Look what he said. He said, "Oh, faithless or unbelieving generation. Now, here's a term i want to throw out there for you. I've been toying with, with this all week. Every now and then, I stumble across a man teaser. Here's what, he, here's what he's describing. He's describing unbelieving faith. That's right. Unbelieving faith. You see, at first, that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But it's not. That's what these boys had. They had unbelieving faith. It's kind of like one of my profs described for us one time when he described the difference between, between moral atheism and practical atheism. The Bible even talks about, practi- the Old Testament talks about practical atheism. You know what practical atheism is? Practical atheism is believing in God, but living like it doesn't matter. And you see, that's unbelieving faith. It's hard for us to reconcile the fact that we believe that God the Father sent forth His Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ, to die on Calvary's cross in order that you and I might have a relationship and fellowship with God. It's hard for us to reconcile that when we don't spend time with Him. And Jesus says that's unbelieving prayer. I mean, that's unbelieving faith. Now, look, here's the deal. I want you to hear me and hear me well. Demonic confrontations are rarely about spiritual power. It's not a power confrontation. It's a truth confrontation. Are you with me? It's not about how powerful I am or how much power I have. If we believe that, then I'd be no better than the witch doctors in the Quilombola villages in Brazil. It's not about power. My power is about truth. But can I say to you that at some point the two kind of merge? Because you remember when Peter and John again were coming out of that temple that day, people saw them, and here's what the Bible says. They took note that they had been with Jesus. You see, they just had enough faith to believe that the Son of God, dying on Calvary's cross, rent the veil of the temple, the veil in the temple from top to bottom, making fellowship with God Almighty possible. And they took advantage of that you see that's what salvation is it's about a relationship and fellowship with god so can i ask you do you have faith that believes and if you have faith that believes it will always manifest itself in spending time with him fellowship and if not then friend we're not living out the truth and if we've got inconsistency in our life let me tell you what you're not going to be able to do, have influence especially in the spiritual realm you're just not hey let me tell you something scared me to death, here's what scared me to death, you know it's, it's if I told you some of the things that we deal with on the front lines in Quilombola villages in Brazil as it relates to demonic manifestation, you'd think I was crazy so I'm not going to tell you. you you know I'm crazy already but here's the thing, there was a missionary one time in a Quilombola village and any time you push back the darkness where the devil has always reigned with the truth of the gospel, you're going to have that demonic uprising where they actually speak. And there was a demon that spoke one time and a missionary said to him, in the name of Jesus, you have no authority here. The gospel is now being presented, and we want you to be quiet. The demon spoke back. Here's what he said: Who do you think you are? I know what you did last night. Listen, if I ripped my shirt off right now, you'd see you'd see goosebumps on my spine cause I'm telling you that happened. And there's no way that we can have spiritual power when we're playing footsie's under the table with the same demon we're trying to cast out. You see what I'm saying? Listen to me. We can't have fellowship with darkness and expect to be victorious over darkness. We got to be all in. Are we're going to be the little church that cannot. The little church that couldn't. And I want to say to you, church, listen to me. You've heard me say this before from the pulpit. There's one thing. You know, I told you before, we've got all the elements here for God to do something that's beyond our belief at Grace Church Boniface. We really do. The ingredients are here. The elements are here. But one thing that bothers me as pastor is since we only have one public meeting a week, we have no built-in venue for corporate prayer time. And I'm telling you, Jesus said this kind comes out by nothing except prayer. Could it be the reason why we have hit a plateau, the reason we're not seeing growth like we ought to be seeing, like we want to be seeing, is because if we did we just attribute it to ourselves but how about if we bombarded heaven and said dear God there's no way Boniface is gonna come to faith there's no way there's gonna be spiritual influence in Boniface that kind of controls the collateral damage of the demonic in this area unless you do it so I've been talking with dr. John dr. John we've got to have a time where we can have where we can come together as a church I mean, we have gone as far as we can go in our own strength. Are you with me? We have. We we can't go any farther like this. We've got to do something different, and that difference is this kind is not overcome by anything except prayer. So we've got to get a time when we come together as a church. And look here. I know one of the things that we've always said is no more meetings. We don't need five meetings a week, and we don't. But no matter what it takes, if we don't pray, we're never going to be anything except the little church that could not. So one of the first things we're going to do is before we start grace groups this summer. When are we starting, Dr. John? Last week of August. So somewhere about third or fourth week of August, we're going to declare a Wednesday night, and we're going to come up here and we're going to have some directed time of prayer. Where we ask the good God of heaven to do through us what we cannot do. See, because here's what Jesus taught in John 15. He said, abide in me and I in you. He said, apart from me, you can do what? How much is that? You see, we can't do anything before we pray. But after we pray, it's limitless. To him who believes, all things are possible. You know, here, here's this daddy. The disciples had an unbelieving faith. This daddy had an unbelieving faith. And you know, he, the reason this daddy, I mean, he probably had a good reason to have unbelieving faith because he just watched the church fail. Watched a church fail. Collateral damage. Got to run. Look at this process. Where are we, Grace? Where are we? A previous degree of success. A dangerous assumption. Then discipline begins to slip. Where are you in this process? Where am I in this process? Where are we in this process? Because here's what happens next. Ultimately, disaster strikes. Disaster strikes. Here they were. Crowd gathering, a public platform, and they fail right out there in front of God and everybody. You see, here's the deal. God's not going to give us a big crowd if we're going to fail in front of them. Is that right? Probably won't have a large following, a whole lot of influence, if we're going to fail in front of them. Disaster struck. Disaster struck came down time for business and the church could not you know we don't have anything to do with anybody other than us by golly we can do something about us notice number next when the church can't serious problems arise number two when the church can't it's because a subtle process has occurred And number three when the church can't Savior's presence is the answer. Now I want you to see this. Look, look with me at the very beginning of this passage. When they came back, who was they? It's Jesus and Peter, James, and John. They were on the top of the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Now they come back to the other 12 who are down here in a powerless showdown with the devil. They can do nothing about it. So here's Here's what it teaches us. Here's what the church that cannot needs more than anything. It needs the Savior's presence. So check this out. I want you to see this. Number one, he did not leave them alone. He came to them in their powerless situation. He came to them. Verse number 15, Immediately. When the entire crowd saw Him, that is Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet Him. Church, it reminds me of Revelation chapter 3. Remember the church at Laodicea? Where was Jesus in Laodicea? He was outside the church. Doing what? Knocking on the door saying, Church, somebody open up and let me in. Can you imagine a church without the presence of Jesus? A church without the presence of Jesus is pretty pathetic. And you see, that's why there's something about abiding in Him that's accomplished through prayer, like nothing else. So notice, He comes to Him. But here's one that I didn't put on my paper that you got to see: in His presence, foolishness ceases you got to see that. Notice with me what takes place. There was a large crowd around them, verse 14 says, scribes arguing with the disciples. Now, Jesus shows up, foolishness stops, and amazement starts. Do you see that? Now, all of a sudden, this crowd is amazed. They're shocked. They're astonished. I mean, part of the reason is, I think, because they were just talking about you. Boom, you show up. You ever had that scenario? You ever had that? You ever been talking about somebody, and all of a sudden, bang, there they are? <laughs> you a little bit scared because you wonder if they heard what you said? Well, that's the way it was with Jesus. Here they are talking about him. Boom, he shows up. So they're shocked and amazed. But notice how the foolishness ceases. They up there just eating the disciples who were powerless up because they were emboldened. Jesus steps in the scenario and he says, What are are y'all discussing with them? Dead silence. Nobody said anything. Nobody accused him. Nobody criticized. Nobody made snide remarks. I'm telling you, in the presence of Jesus, foolishness does not grow. It does not Oh, astonishment can, but foolishness does not. Look, none of those scribes who were big and bad when Jesus wasn't there saying anything now. Huh? Their tongue is cleaving to the roof of their mouth. Their knees just turn to jello. Foolishness ceases. And the voice that rises above the crowd is a man who is desperate. He said, Master, he's not scared. He doesn't have foolishness. Master, my son is possessed, and I brought him to your disciples to cast out the demon. But they could not. Foolishness ceases. Check out what comes next. When the church cannot, the Savior's presence is the answer. Man, I tell you, it's something about a church that prays. When you walk into it, you'll sense the presence of the Lord of glory. Notice what else the Bible says. He did not leave them alone. Number two, in verse number 21, he finds the father in this situation. Now check this out. Look at verse number 21. Here's this boy, and and he's convulsing. He's doing all of these things. This demon is just ravaging this poor child. And in the middle of the demon ravaging him, Jesus asks, what seems like to be a dumb question. I mean, if that was your baby, and he's on the ground, his eyes roll back in his head, he's stiff, he's grinding his teeth, he's foaming at the mouth, he's kicking, he's flailing, do you want to answer stupid questions at a time like that? You really don't. You know, when it's your son, when it's your child, it's different. You know, for six years, I worked on a paramedic truck, Gulfport Fire Department. And the big thing was, when we was going through school, they used to tell us, you're not a medic until you've had a frantic mama come up to you and throw a blue baby into your arms. Had that happened on numerous occasions, numerous occasions, where a blue lifeless baby would be thrown to us by a screaming mother. She don't want us to ask stupid questions. She wants us to do something bring her child to I remember one night I was at the fire station about two in the morning and something woke me up it wasn't the alarm it was one of the chiefs he came said hey your wife just called she said you got to get to the hospital your son had a seizure what two years old so I run over to the emergency room where we always take patients and we're in there and They've got my son on a table, and they're trying to cool him off, and everything seems to be fine. He's all right, you know. And I just sat down in there and talked, try to find out what's going on. And, you know, Heather's in a nightgown. You know, mamas don't even take time to put on clothes when stuff like that happens. And, uh, (laughs) And gathering all the story, he started seizing again on the table. And I ran and picked him up. And you see, as a medic, I knew where the ER physicians hang out when they're not in the room. I I know where the attending is. So I took off, bust through all the private places where nobody can go, threw open the physicians' quarters, and there was Dr. Rick Weiland sitting in there, and I threw him my son, who was seasoned. And he called him, and he looked at me, and he didn't even pay attention to the son. He just said, hey, it's a lot different when it's your son, ain't it, Richie? I wanted to slap him. (laughs) I want him to do something for my son who was was stiffening out. But now, here's what's going on. Jesus didn't just ask a stupid question. But if you think about it, it sounds like it in the middle of this, what does that have to do with it? Look what's happening to him. (laughs) Fix him! So why did Jesus ask that question? Here it is. Because he was finding where the father was in this situation. Stay with me here for a little while. You see, Jesus, as the Son of God, didn't have to ask that. But I think He's given you and I some insight here into our prayer life and into why sometimes we are fruitless. Because He asked that question because here's what, here's what we know it is never the Father's will for demonic possession to be long term. Now, make no mistake about it, Jesus will use the devil sometimes to discipline his people. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Read several other places. But it's never long term. It's not permanent. So Jesus asks, how long, not for his benefit, but probably for those who are around him. And here's the thing about prayer. You know one of the reasons why we're so unfruitful in prayer is because James says this. James says, When you ask, you ask amiss. If you ask anything according to the Father's will, know that He hears you and you'll have what you ask. So we can't be asking contrary to His will. So Jesus finds where the Father is in this, not for His benefit, but for those who are around Him, so that He's not working against the Father. Now let's just stop right there for a minute and Find out how many times you reckon we have asked God to do something contrary to His will, because we're not spiritually astute enough to know His will because discipline has slipped, and we're not walking with Him, and our prayer life suffers. You have not because you ask not. Got a pastor friend says I ask God every day for a million dollars. I said you do. He said yeah. I said why? He said, Cause I want to get to heaven and hear Him say one day. Well I had a million for Him. You never asked me. So He asked. when you ask, you ask amiss. Jesus finds the Father in this situation. He wants everybody else to see where the Father is. And when you ask, according to the Father's will. Now check this out, notice, notice what else he does. He finds the Father in the situation. Notice number, verse number 25, he does not give demons undue publicity. Man, we don't need to put them on stage. Don't need to give him any more publicity. Notice verse number 25. When he saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, you see that? So probably what happened when he walked up there, he took that boy and the father aside as he always did. He never healed. He never cast out demons. He never did anything like that in a big room in front of a lot of people. He'd always do it privately because he respects people's dignity. All right? He wouldn't have been a good faith healer of today on a platform with spotlights and big crowds in front of him. That wasn't the way he did it. Look what he did. When he saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, You deaf and mute spirit. Wow. You see, here's the reality. When a person is plagued with an evil spirit, your personality assumes the characteristics of that particular spirit. So Jesus said, you deaf and mute spirit. The reason the boy couldn't hear and the reason he couldn't talk is because the demon had transferred his personality. So he says, come out of him. He didn't give him undue publicity. Number next, and I'm hurrying, he doesn't allow the cure to kill. Look at this. After crying out and throwing him in terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became much like a corpse, so much like a corpse that most of them thought he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. Hey, hear me. There are so many people that are living outside the will of God, and they are under the illusion that if I give my life completely to Christ, he's going to kill all of my fun. Hey, the cure doesn't kill. Let me tell you what the cure does. The cure will cause you to rise. It'll cause you to be the person created in the image of God, whom God created you to be. You don't have to worry about the cure killing you. Cure ain't gonna kill you. Jesus didn't drive a demon out for him to lay lifeless on the ground. Jesus cured him for him to get up and be the person that God created him to be. Number next, I got and I'm, I'm, I'm running out of time. He doesn't allow the cure to kill. In verse number twenty nine, get this, he doesn't allow them nor us to continue in ignorance. See, it was in ignorance that they were powerless. They were the little church that couldn't. They asked Jesus, they said, tell us why. And it's not his tactic to say, well, you got to find that out on your own. So many people today that make God's will out to be some grand mystery, as if God wants to hide it from us. I promise you, he's wanting us to know most of the time more than we want to know ourselves. And he doesn't allow the little church that can't to continue in ignorance. You know what? Here's the truth. You don't need a preacher to tell you this because the best communicator in the world, if you're a child of God, he's telling you. He's putting his finger in your life on the problem. You know what it is. You know why... You can't when God's word says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. He doesn't allow us to live in ignorance. We know why we can't. We know why we're failing. We know why most of the time we're impotent. The only question is, what are you willing to do about it? Too much to risk the church being the little church that could not. Would you stand with me please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word.